not sure I'll remember. <laughs> Before I forget, let me pray. Uh, Father, thank you. Uh, you have made us <laughs> in a fearful and wonderful way. Um, thank you for that. Uh, we enjoy the gift of humor. Uh, we enjoy so many great and wonderful gifts from you. Uh, thank you. Uh, Lord, you, uh, you know what's happening to our weather, and we cannot help uh, but ask you to come help us. And would you change um, our weather? We need a season of rain and cool that comes with it. And we don't know what else to do, and so we come to you first and ask you, please, would you come and help us? Uh, we need it. So would your spirit be here tonight, too, and lead us and guide us into all truth? Your word is truth. Would you apply it to each one of us as we have need tonight? In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, 1 Samuel, still talking about the monarchy. Uh, if you're our guest tonight, a special welcome, quick review for you. Uh, 1 Samuel covers a time of transition from no king, we're coming off the book of Judges, when we had no king, to our king, meaning the king Israel chose for herself, that was Saul, and we're moving into God's king, David, and we're even beginning to see some David in our chapters for today. Israel has asked for Saul. But he doesn't have the character. He doesn't deserve the throne. And he continues to fight against God's will. Israel needs David, an obedient son, a humble servant, a victorious warrior. Last week, David conquered the giant Goliath. And I think, is this the first week we've had this timeline in here? Maybe. Okay. Okay, so it's on page three of your handout. This is a timeline of the United Kingdom. All of these dates are approximate. Uh, they primarily come from, uh, a, a, it's a standard Old Testament book called Hill and Walton. We've got some great charts and maps in there it substantially comes from that book and you can see the overlap between Samuel and Saul Saul and David and then David handing the kingdom the United Kingdom still over to Solomon the little daggers underneath there are uh, major battles and so last week David's fighting and being winning over his battle with Goliath so that happens approximately right here. Oh, this is really washed out. This is a whole colored bar. Uh, so if you think this timeline is somewhat correct, then David and Goliath, this, you know, maybe he's 18, maybe he's as old as 20, somewhere in there. That's when David is battling Goliath. And so the events of tonight are happening, so he's over 20 when they're beginning to happen. Okay, last week David conquers Goliath, 
This week, David has to fight another giant called fear. Now, fear is a giant you and I likely face on a somewhat regular basis. You say, no, I don't. I don't fight fear. Do you fight anxiety? Like when Jesus says, don't be anxious. Anxious, fear, do not worry, those kinds of things. Uh, fear is a giant David had to fight, and fear is a giant we have to fight on a regular basis. So let's take a look at David, and then we'll make some applications. Here's the big idea for tonight. Fear that doesn't send David running to God sends David running from God. And we've got 18, chapter 18 through 21 tonight. David begins very well. Remember, he's just in 17. He's just killed Goliath. 18, after David had finished talking with Saul, he met Jonathan, the king's son. There was an immediate bond between them, for Jonathan loved David. From that day on, Saul kept David with him and wouldn't let him return home. And Jonathan made a solemn pact with David because he loved him as he loved himself. Jonathan sealed the pact by taking off his robe and giving it to David, together with his tunic, sword, bow, and belt. What has Jonathan basically just done here? He's told to David, you will be king, and I will serve you. He's taken off the royal accoutrements, and he's given them to David. So he's basically putting himself in a second position to David. Whatever Saul asked David to do, David did it successfully. So Saul made him commander over the men of war, an appointment that was welcomed by the people and Saul's officers alike. Possibly, probably, this was, he was put in charge of the whole army. How old is he? 20. He's a... Um, mm, a junior or a senior in college. Put over, <laughs> put over the army. Uh, this was welcomed by the people and Saul's officers alike. When the victorious Israelite army was returning home after David had killed the Philistine, women from all the towns of Israel came out to meet King Saul. They sang and danced for joy with tambourines and cymbals. This was their song. Saul has killed his thousands and David his ten thousands. <laughs> mm, ladies, not such a great song to sing. <laughs> this made Saul very happy. Oh, it doesn't say happy. This made Saul very angry. What's this? He cried. They credit David with ten thousands and me with only thousands. Next, they'll be making him their king. So from that time on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. The very next day, a tormenting spirit from God overwhelmed Saul, and he began to rave in his house like a madman. David was playing the harp as he did each day, but Saul had a spear in his hand, and he suddenly hurled it at David, intending to pin him to the wall. But David escaped him twice. 
first thing we have here is David's faith overcomes trials, but this is a trial of praise. Proverbs 27, if you turn over to Proverbs 27, Twenty-seven, twenty-one. Fire tests the purity of silver and gold, but a person is tested by being praised. Did you know being praised is a test? Who didn't pass? Saul. Saul didn't pass. How differently praise seemed to affect David and Saul. So David's faith overcomes a trial of praise. Next, 12 through 16, Saul was then afraid of David, for the Lord was with David and had turned away from Saul. Finally, Saul sent him away and appointed him commander over a thousand men. You've been the guy over the whole army, and now he says, uh, just take a thousand men. So he gets demoted. David faithfully led his troops into battle. David continued to succeed in everything he did, for the Lord was with him. When Saul recognized this, he became even more afraid of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David because he was so successful at leading his troops into battle. David has an extremely humble spirit when you go from being, I don't know what you'd call it, he's like the king general. <laughs> you go all the way from the top, and now you're just going to be the guy over a thousand. Now, a thousand is still a lot, but it's not the same as the whole army. So he's been demoted, but does he pout? Does he go, take your thousand guys and go home? Nope. He continues to serve the Lord faithfully with a humble spirit. Next, we have a, a long little story where David is going to marry Saul's daughter. So Saul says to him in verse 17, I'm ready to give you my older daughter, Merab, as your wife. But first, you must prove yourself to be a real warrior by fighting the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, I'll send him out against the Philistines and let them kill him rather than doing it myself. This is Saul. <laughs> Who am I and what is my family in Israel that I should be the king's son-in-law? And so when it comes time for Saul to give his daughter Merib in marriage, instead of giving her to David, he gives her to another fellow named Adriel. By the way, what did he say he would do for the one who beat Goliath? Oh, mm. Changed my mind. Don't want to do that. Want to do something different. Saul is uh, not quite a complete truth teller here. In the meantime, Saul's daughter Michael had fallen in love with David. And Saul was delighted when he heard about it. Here's another chance to see him killed by the Philistines. But to David he said, today you have a second chance to become my son-in-law. If I'm David, I'm moving. 
Then Saul told his men to say to David, the king really likes you and so do we. Why don't you accept the king's offer and become his son-in-law? When Saul's men said these things to David, he says, how can a poor man from a humble family afford the bride price for the daughter of a king? When Saul's men reported this back to the king, he said, ah, tell him all I want is a hundred Philistine foreskins. Vengeance on my enemies is all I really want. But what Saul had in mind was that David would be killed in the fight. (laughs) So David brings 200 home (laughs) instead of just 100. Uh, And so Saul gave his daughter Michael to David to be his wife. Saul realized the Lord was with David and how much Michael loved him. And Saul becomes even more afraid of him. Uh, And every time the commanders of the Philistines attacked, David was more successful against them than all the rest of Saul's officers. So David's name became very famous. So David, uh, he's promised the the oldest daughter, and no, that didn't come to pass. So again, David, showing his resilience, okay, he waits, he he, uh, brings home the bride price, and... I mean, he didn't just bring a hundred, he brought two hundred. I mean, David has not backed up or backed off of who he is. Even in a a trial of disappointment, we see David's character shining through. So David's faith in chapter 18 is overcoming trials. Chapter 19, Saul now urged his servants and his son Jonathan to assassinate David. But Jonathan, because of his strong affection for David, told him what his father was planning. And so he he keeps David in the loop uh, on what his father is thinking. Um, Let's see. War breaks out, verse 8. David led his troops against the Philistines. He attacked them with such fury that they all ran away. But one day when Saul was sitting at home with spear in hand, the tormenting spirit from the Lord suddenly came upon him again. As David played his harp, Saul hurled his spear at David. But David dodged out of the way, and leaving the spear stuck in the wall, he fled and escaped into the night. Then Saul sent troops to watch David's house. They were told to kill David when he came out the next morning. You feel this thing ramping up? Saul is determined to kill David. But Michael, David's wife, and Saul's daughter, warned him, if you don't escape tonight, you will be dead by morning. So she helped him climb out through a window, and he fled and escaped. Then she took an idol. What? Why does Michael have an idol in the house? Because maybe Saul had idols. Wedding present. Who knows? It's big enough, though. It's not a little one. It's big enough that it can substitute for David. And so she puts it in the bed, and she puts some hair on it, and pulls the covers up. I mean, this is... This is a thing. This is not like a little tiny. This is a big idol. Why is it in why is it in David's house? But why is it in Michael's house? 
Okay. This is, this is not good. This is, we're getting some more insight into who Saul is and his relationship with the Lord. Okay, so when the troops come to arrest David, she told him he was sick and couldn't get out of bed. But Saul sent the troops back to get David. He ordered, bring him to me in his bed so I can kill him. But when they came to carry David out, they discovered that it was only an idol in the bed with a cushion of goat's hair at its head. Why have you betrayed me like this and let my enemy escape, Saul demanded of Michael. I had to, Michael replied. He threatened to kill me if I didn't help him. Okay, so Michael is a little afraid. So David escapes, okay? So Saul is doing everything he can right now to try and kill David. So in chapter 19, a, a switch is happening. David has exercised faith in his trials. Now in 19, he begins turning to others for help. So first he turns to Jonathan. Jonathan, help me, help me. Let me know what's going on in your dad's mind. So he turns to Jonathan, maybe even to intervene with Saul, and that seems to work, in quotes, temporarily. Well, Jonathan can't stop Saul, and so now who does David turn to? He turns to Michael, and he says, Michael, you have to help me. Uh, not a lot of help, she is. I mean, I guess she helps him out the window, but we discover that maybe Saul's keeping idols in his house and giving them to his daughter I don't know so he's got an idol there so he's looking to Michael for help and that's at least gets him out the window and then he runs so David escaped and went to Ramah to see Samuel and told him all that Saul had done to him then Samuel took David to live with him at Naoth when the report reached Saul that David was at Naoth in Ramah he sent troops to capture him and guess what happens? God intervenes. Uh, Saul goes to Ramah, um, and then he begins to prophesy, and we're told of the proverb again. What? Is even Saul a prophet? And so God intervenes and confuses or at least mm, redirects Saul and the men who are looking for David. So David is running now to Ramah because he's looking for Samuel's help. Now maybe, positive, maybe he's going to Samuel to get some prayer. That would be a good thing. And the spiritual intervention is what provided a way of escape for David. So he runs to Samuel, and God seems to show up and help him at least temporarily. Chapter 20, things are getting worse. And so chapter 20, David flees from Ramah and he finds Jonathan. And he says, what have I done? What have I done? And Jonathan says, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. It's all, it's all good. And David says, it's not good. I need you to find out. And so here's what you're going to tell your dad at the New Moon Festival. You, you tell him these things and then we'll find out. And so they agree on uh, what Jonathan is going to tell him and how Jonathan will communicate this information back to David. So they do all of those things. They make a pact of friendship, and they lay out their plan. 
So they finally discover uh, at last, verse 42 of chapter 20, at last Jonathan said to David, after it has become clear uh, that Saul is intent on killing David, at last Jonathan said to David, go in peace, for we have sworn loyalty to each other in the Lord's name. The Lord is the witness of a bond between us and our children forever. Then David left, and Jonathan returned to the town. So David has turned to others. Now he begins turning to himself for help. So in chapter 20, basically chapter 20 is David's lie to Saul to see what Saul's going to do with this information. So David has lied. He's not going home. He's hiding. And he tells Jonathan, go say this is true when it isn't true. And so David, David is lying here. He gets to chapter 21, so now he's got to leave Jonathan. David goes to the town of Nob in chapter 21, and now he's going to see Ahimelech the priest. Ahimelech trembled when he saw him. Why are you alone, he asked. Why is no one with you? What is he beginning to think? Not good. Something's not right here, and here's David. And either David is going to do something here, or Saul's going to come here and wipe us all out, if he knows David is here. So Ahimelech is trembling because he's... He's not happy about what he's seeing. The king has sent me on a private matter, David said. He told me not to tell anyone why I'm here. I've told my men where to meet me later. Now, what's there to eat? Give me five loaves of bread or anything else you have. And that's where he gives him the, uh, the holy bread. And he asks one thing, uh, a purity thing. And David says, don't worry about that. Uh, so he gives him the holy bread. Uh, and then he's going to get the spear or uh, the uh, sword of Goliath. That's, for some reason, behind the furniture. <laughs> and so Ahimelech gets the sword and gives it to David. But then, verse 7, Dog the Edomite! Saul's chief herdsman was there that day. Having been detained before the Lord. So for some reason, the Lord has left Dog here. Dog sees David. And now David is going to get ratted out. Because Dog is going to go back to Saul and tell him what's going on. So he, in verse 9, so he gets Goliath's sword. Uh, verse 10, he escapes from Saul. And now he goes to King Achish of Gath. Now, wait a minute. Who lived in Gath? Goliath. Where is Gath? It's in the Philistines' land. Why is he running to the Philistines? David, what are you doing? And so he runs to King Achish. But the officers were unhappy about his being there. Isn't this David, the king of the land, they asked? The what? How do they know he's king? Uh, let's see, isn't this David the king of the land, they ask? Isn't he the one the people honor with dances, singing, Saul has killed his thousands, and David his ten thousands? 
David heard these comments and was very afraid of what King Achish of Gath might do to him. So he pretended to be insane, scratching on doors and drooling down his beard. This is David. This is our guy. <laughs> Finally, King Achish said to his men, must you bring me a madman? We already have enough of them around here. Why should I let someone like this be my guest? So he's not happy that David is feigning, must be feigning very well to be a madman. And so he, David has lied to Saul. He's lied to Ahimelech. He's lying to Achish in these chapters. He's gone from faith. He's turned to others, Jonathan and Michael and Samuel, and that hasn't solved his problem. And so what's he beginning to do? Take matters into his own hands in his fear. It's taken David from the royal palace right into the arms of the enemy. Right now, David is trusting himself, his own lies and schemes rather than God, to protect his steps and preserve his life. This is our David. I am so grateful for these chapters. Our greater David never did this. But this David, I'm not hallelujahing that he's doing this, but I'm, I'm grateful these chapters are in here because David is such an incredible man of faith that even David can get afraid. And when he gets afraid, he can do things that are uncharacteristic of him. I'm grateful for that. Has fear ever caused you to turn to others? Before you turn to God? Has fear ever caused you to lie? Some would say, well, no, not lie. Has fear ever caused you to not tell the whole truth? Has fear ever caused you to take matters into your own hands? If you say no to those questions, you're a liar. (laughs) And as your friend and brother, I'm calling you out. (laughs) Of course, fear has done these things to us. Because the same thing that hits David hits us. Fear that doesn't send us running to God sends us running from God. I got a phone call one evening, this is several years ago, uh, from a doctor's office after I, I get a physical every year, and they called me after that. And they said, um, would you come in and, the doctor said, would you come in and see me, you know, as soon as you can. I'm assuming he doesn't want to share good news with me. So I called him the next day and I asked to speak to the doctor instead of coming in. And, and he got on the phone and he said, yeah, I need you to come in. We need to do some more tests. It looks like you have liver cancer. <laughs> Yay. No, so far I don't. But he was concerned. I appreciate his concern. He wants to run extra tests. Love that. Let's be thorough. What's going through my brain as soon as you hear that on the other end of the phone? 
some of you know. First thing that pops in your brain is fear. And my thought is not, I'm going to hit my knees and pray to God. I'm a little shell-shocked, and you do, you just kind of start walking around, or at least I did, instead of saying, oh, Lord, let it be as you will. Maybe you fear failing health. Maybe your own. Maybe a spouse. Maybe a child. Maybe a parent. Maybe for you it's finances. Could be finances these days. They keep threatening the market's going to correct by 30% or something like that. That'd be substantial. Maybe there's a, a fear at your workplace. Maybe there's a fear of, just a personal fear of not measuring up. Or maybe there's a fear of spending your life alone. I don't know what your fears are. And you don't know what mine are. And what might be fearful to me might not be fearful to you, and what's fearful to you might not be fearful to me. We each have our own fears. But fear that doesn't send us running to God. It sends us running from God. Why? Because fear distorts our perspective. Circumstances become large when we're threatened with loss or when we're reminded of our own vulnerability. People become large, especially when they attack, oppress, or threaten us. When they expose us or humiliate us. When they reject, ridicule, or disparage us. And God becomes small. Fear distorts our perspective. Fear incites our imagination. I talked to one guy years and years ago, and I've always remembered this. And he, he was describing to me um, his situation and what he anticipated would happen. And this is actually back at the rocket factory. This is so many years ago. This is what he anticipated to happen. I finally said, um, do you do jigsaw puzzles? Do you ever make jigsaw puzzles? And he says, oh, yeah. I said, it seems to me like you've taken the corner piece of the jigsaw puzzle without the box, and you've now projected out <laughs> what the whole jigsaw puzzle looks like, but you've only got the corner piece, one corner. But you've, you've created this whole picture of what things, what's going to happen. And he said, oh, yeah, I, yes, I guess I am doing that. We can sometimes take the one puzzle piece and turn it into the whole entire picture, the whole entire jigsaw puzzle, because fear incites our imagination. Our imagination can grow a fear into something that can ruin our day or even rule our life. We may be tempted 
or become tempted to think God is punishing us for something. Or for a time, we may even forget God exists, or at least we act that way. Regarding number three, we may become tempted to think God is punishing us for something. Review Romans 5, 6, 7, 8. He is not punishing you for anything. So fear distorts our perspective, it incites our imagination, and many times it prompts us to take matters into our own hands. We might lie or scheme as David did. Who else? David is in actually pretty good company here. Who else did this? Remember back in Genesis? Abraham did this. Who else did this? Jacob. Huh. Ooh, pretty good company. <laughs> Isaac. I don't think Joseph ever did. But almost every character we've seen has a, has a, a flaw. And fear is what's common to mankind. Uh, Romans 3.8, great verse uh, for you to know. If you don't want to memorize it, that's fine. But just know where it is and what it says. Um, when we start um, lying or scheming, uh, Romans 3.8 says this. Uh, Paul is talking about how some people speak about him. He says, and some people even slander us by claiming that we say, the more we sin, the better it is. Those who say such things deserve to be condemned. Uh, you don't use sin or evil thinking good will come out of it. It doesn't work that way. Sin always leads to death. Sin doesn't get used for good. Things inevitably go from bad to worse when we depend on our own wisdom instead of God's word. Some of you are thinking, all right, I don't know if I have any fear right now. And so, let me consult the book. I hear chants of, oh, no. I hate this book. He calls it anxiety, but it's fear. Uh, he says, some years ago, I surveyed the entire New Testament looking for instances where various Christian character traits were taught by precept, or by example. I found 27. It may not surprise you that love was taught most often, some 50 times. It may surprise you that humility was a close second with 40 instances. But what really surprised me is that trust in God in all our circumstances was third, being taught 13 or more times. Trust in God in all circumstances. The opposite of trust in God is either anxiety or frustration. And Jesus had a lot to say about anxiety. 
the most prominent time is Matthew 6, where he uses the word anxious six times. Uh, another expression Jesus uses regarding anxiety is fear not, or as some translations render it, do not be afraid. Paul picks up this admonition about anxiety with his words in Philippians 4, 6, do not be anxious about anything. Peter adds this exhortation, cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. He goes on to say in this paragraph, um, he, he develops it a little bit further, but the bottom line is, in other words, it is the moral will of God that we not be anxious. Or to say it more explicitly, anxiety is sin. Anxiety is sin for two reasons. First, as I've already mentioned, anxiety is a distrust of God. Did David mistrust or distrust God? Yes. When you and I get afraid of something, we get anxious. What is, what's way, way, what's the part of the iceberg underneath the water that we don't really look at very much? It is distrust or mistrust of God. Anxiety is a sin also because it is a lack of acceptance of God's providence in our lives. Ugh. Fear. A giant. A giant that the Lord needs to kill in all of our... Mm, our, our man-soul territories. <laughs> Fear is a giant. It's a Goliath that walks around and shows us how tall he is and shows us how big his spear and his sword are and how heavy his chainmail armor is. And he stomps around and he, he's got one goal. That's to make us afraid, because if we're afraid, then somewhere down there we're mistrusting, distrusting God, and we're not willing to accept what God may have for us. I didn't say this would be a fun lecture or an easy lecture. <laughs> when we look at fear, our fear hits us down to the core of who we are. How can we have a walk of faith and not fear? We've talked about this before, and some things just need to be reiterated. We are always concerned about things over which we have no control or responsibility. What do I do with the things for which I am responsible? Simply, I am to obey. What about the things I'm concerned about but have no ability to control? Whatsoever. I am to trust. 
great hymn, Trust and Obey. Well, there is no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. Such a simple, profound song. So true. Do you have joy and peace in your life? Or do you have fear? If you have fear, is this something you're responsible for? Meaning, whatever's causing you fear, is this something over which you have responsibility? If it is, trust God's word, not your own wisdom. What if it's then, because it mostly is, in circumstances, in situations, and things like that that are in our, I'm concerned about this, but I don't have any way to stop it, start it, control it, or anything else about it. When that doctor called me on the phone and said, I think you may have liver cancer, did I put it there? Nope, not as far as I know. Can I get it out? Nope, not as far as I know. I had an X-Acto knife, but I figured I didn't know exactly where to dig around. <laughs> Kidding. I can't get it out. I can't heal myself. I can't take care of this. But I'm concerned about it, very concerned. What did I need to do? I needed to go to God first. What am I responsible for? Lord, you've said 